Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Jonathan Lipson, Harold E. Cohen Chair and Professor of Law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law. We'll be discussing his recent article, The Secret Life of Priority, Corporate Reorganization After Jevic, which was recently published in the Washington Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the episode show notes. Jonathan, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Your article is about the topic of priority uh, in corporate reorganization after a pretty significant Supreme Court case on that topic. Before we get into the article and and the case, could you give our listeners uh, a little bit of a high-level background of the corporate reorganization process, maybe what Chapter 7 and Chapter 11 do, what their, their goals are, and maybe where this idea of priority, the focus of your article, fits into that framework? Sure. So taking the, the process first, um, I think you know, most folks know that if a company gets into serious financial trouble um, and is unable to renegotiate with creditors, um, the company is going to end up in some kind of bankruptcy proceeding. And for companies, for the practical matter, there are two choices. Um, there's Chapter 11 um, uh, proceedings um, and there are Chapter 7 proceedings. Um, the chapter seven is simple. It's a liquidation um, of the assets of the company, um, you know, whereupon the, the you know, proceeds of the liquidation are distributed in order of priority, which we'll talk about in a minute. Chapter 11 is, I think, more interesting because its goal historically has been to enable companies that appear to be viable to restructure or reorganize rather than liquidate. Um, and so you know, like every legacy air carrier and, you know, many, every asbestos company, many, many, many companies um, have reorganized under Chapter 11 of the United States Bankruptcy Code. And there are sort of three key things I think that people need to think about about the process. The first is that companies will want to do this because um, commencing a case under either Chapter 7 or 11 automatically stays all collection litigation. So it provides a breathing spell for management. Number two, it concentrates in a single venue all civil litigation, essentially, against the debtor. Um, so all collection actions and you know tort actions, et cetera, will be um, consolidated into um, one bankruptcy court. As a practical matter, companies have a fair amount of discretion in which court they end up in. And so very frequently, they'll end up in the bankruptcy court for the District of Delaware or the Southern District of New York, if they are larger companies, um, because the venue rules are fairly loose. Um, and that's important because the judges there are well-known. They're very good, but they're well-known, and so it's easier for folks to predict outcomes. And then number three, you know, a fiduciary is appointed to manage the assets of the company. In Chapter 7, that's obviously just going to be a trustee. In Chapter 11, uh, part of what is interesting and important is that it will be management of the debtor who are, you know, deemed the debtor in possession, and they are uh, clothed with the fiduciary duties of a trustee for the most part, duties that in theory run to general unsecured creditors, but which for a variety of reasons, I think, 
might in some cases end up running to or for the benefit of secured creditors. So that's the Chapter 11 process, that's the Chapter 7 process, um, you know, fairly straightforward. Priority, you know, there, there are three types of priority to think about. Um, the first and the simplest really is payment priority. Um, it just means that, you know, in any distribution of money, some person is going to be the first to get paid, some person is going to be the second to get paid, and some person is going to be the third to get paid. If whoever is making the payments, like the debtor, has enough money to pay everybody, priority is not super interesting. But the whole point of bankruptcy is that, you know, most of the time, the corporate debtor cannot pay everybody. So there may be enough to pay, you know, there may be enough to pay the first person and in full, and maybe the second person partially and nothing to pay the third person and so on. So the question then becomes, well, how do we decide who's number one, who's number two, and who's number three? Um, and payment, you know, priority rules, I think, are most intuitively thought of as involving like that basic question. But at a more sophisticated level, um, priority involves property and property rights. And so one of the basic distinctions that the bankruptcy code has to manage is the rights of secured creditors um, versus the rights of unsecured creditors. To be a secured creditor means that you have a priority interest in specific items of property of a debtor. To be an unsecured creditor means that you don't. And so what you know I think very frequently happens is that corporate debtors go into bankruptcy with their assets significantly or maybe fully encumbered, in which event there are no assets available really to distribute to unsecured creditors um, unless the secured creditor agrees otherwise. So that kind of property priority ends up being super important in the bankruptcy process. And I think one of the things that ends up being important in the story of Javik is that, you know, in the world we live in today, corporate debtors, I think, have far more secured debt um, relative to their asset profile than they probably did in 1978 when Congress enacted the bankruptcy code. Um, and so one of the fundamental things that I think Javik ends up being about is, you know, for whom does the system exists? Is it for the benefit of secured creditors or is it for the benefit of unsecured creditors? And, and how do we balance that stuff? The third way to think about priority, you know, you've got payment, you've got property. Um, the third way to think about it, I think, is, is about process. And, and what I mean by that is who gets to decide what happens to the corporate debtor and sort of what are the checks and balances in the process? You know, most people don't think about priority as involving process in any significant way. But if you think about it, and certainly if you go and look at what's actually happening in the real world, right, what secured creditors have been able to do um, over the last 15 years or so is sort of enhance their property rights, not only to magnify their payment priority, but I think, you know, to obtain procedural rights and procedural power in Chapter 11 cases, um, which, you know, then can enhance their payout. And so, you know, the Chapter 11 system, I think, was designed by Congress to exist principally for the benefit of general unsecured creditors. Um, the debtor in possession is a fiduciary for the estate, but the estate is mostly thought of, I think, as being for the benefit of general unsecured creditors. Um, and there you know, will typically be, in larger cases, a, a committee of unsecured creditors appointed to oversee the, the you know, management of the debtor, make sure that the, you know, 
uh, Wolf isn't, isn't walking away with the hen house. Um, but all of that has sort of changed now in, in operation and secured creditors in a variety of ways are able to use their priority property rights to establish procedural priority and in effect control significant aspects of the process. One of the the issues in the Jevic case, which we'll uh, happy to talk a little bit about the, the details of it in, in just a moment, but uh, one of the details was this uh, process of structured dismissals, uh, which my, my takeaway is might be a little bit of a product of companies having more secured debt than they did at the time uh, that the bankruptcy code was enacted, as, as you, you mentioned. Could you discuss um, a little bit of of how structured dismissals have worked, uh, where they fit in the bankruptcy scheme, uh, and and what they mean for priority in, in either an absolute or a, a relative sense. Sure. So there are three ways to get out of Chapter 11. Um, number one, you have a court confirm what's called a plan of reorganization, which has historically been, I think, the ideal goal of the Chapter 11 process. Number two, if that doesn't work, um, the case converts from one under Chapter 11 to one under Chapter 7. Management leaves um, a trustee, a real trustee is appointed to liquidate the assets and distribute them in order of priority. Um, A third way out is through the dismissal of the case under Section 349 of the Bankruptcy Code, which until the advent of the structured dismissal, um, which was the procedural mechanism at issue in Jevic, um, you know, I don't think was anything that people focused on very much. Um, you know, uh, dismissal is, is something that it's really governed by 1112 and 349 of the bankruptcy code. And it was, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's an afterthought, but it, you know, it was, I think typically there for cases that just weren't supposed to be in bankruptcy. So for example, there's long been a concern about um, companies that might've filed for bankruptcy in bad faith mm-hmm. and bad faith filings might be, you know, filing because not because you're generally in financial trouble, but because you've got a dispute with a single creditor and you don't want them and you think they're about to get a judgment and you want to sort of forestall that. And, and so courts would dismiss those cases um, on grounds of, of bad faith under 1112 and 349. The structure dismissal has arisen, as you point out, I think in part because uh, corporate debtors, enter uh, Chapter 11 frequently with their assets significantly or fully encumbered. And the secured creditors want to take advantage of the benefits of Chapter 11, but they do not want to have to bear the cost of confirming a plan of reorganization, which can be expensive. Um, They don't want to have to follow the rules that uh, they may not want to follow the rules that are involved in confirming a plan. And they don't want to convert the case to a Chapter 7 liquidation um, in many cases, including Javik, because they might be concerned that a trustee who's appointed will be interested in scrutinizing their behavior and may sue them. Um, And so what the secured creditors of the world have done, I think very sensibly is, you know, in a sense is, is, you know, working with management um, and, and, you know, lawyers who represent unsecured creditors committees and so on have developed this mechanism known as the structured dismissal, which has elements of a plan of reorganization 
but only very selective elements of a plan of reorganization. And so the structured dismissal, you know, Ingevic attempted to give the secured creditors the benefit of a release and a discharge, which you could probably do under a plan. But of course, structured dismissal did not have to follow any of the rules that you would ordinarily have to follow to confirm a plan. One of the baseline rules that you have to uh, adhere to in confirming a plan is that you either follow in a very general sense what's sometimes called absolute priority, or you get consent. You get the agreement of um, folks who might have a priority right to payment to reduce their entitlement in some way. And absolute priority is, you know, a sort of central feature of uh, bankruptcy law. It's really a central feature of, you know, of, of private ordering in, in our system because it basically says, well, you've got to make sure that, you know, secured creditors get at least the value of their secured claims. Creditors have to get paid general, you know, all creditors, secured and unsecured have to get paid before owners. And that plays out in many, many, many ways. You see it, you know, at work in corporations law, you see it at work in commercial law, you see it at work, you know, in trust law, you see it at work um, in the bankruptcy code. And it's embedded in um, the standards for the confirmation of a plan under 1129 in a variety of ways. But the key point, and then there are many, many other procedural requirements to confirm a plan that we don't need to worry too much about at this point, except to say that they don't apply in a structured dismissal because the dismissal case is just much simpler. So the structured dismissal in JAVIC, um, for example, um, would have given the secured creditors the benefits of a plan, um, but it would not have followed the absolute priority and you know, contemplated by the bankruptcy code. We've alluded to the, the JAVIC case um, quite a bit. I, I wondered if you could discuss some of the facts and the issues and, and what the Supreme Court decided in that case. It, it seems to be a fairly familiar story uh, in a lot of ways uh, of what a corporate reorganization might look like and what some of the issues are. It also seems to have a little bit of uh, a valence with political debates uh, going on right now about private equity, how our economy works for for working people. And so I thought those uh, those facts were interesting, but could you uh, kind of uh, describe the the case and and, and how it, it turned out? Sure. So, so Jevick is this opinion from the Supreme Court. Um, it's you know it's from 2017. It's it's I think a pretty important opinion because it sort of reminds everybody that absolute priority um, applies in bankruptcy. You know regardless of how you leave the case, how you exit the case um, under a plan in a Chapter 7 liquidation and the court held in Jevic um, a structured dismissal. The the case, you're, you're correct, it was a fairly, I think, you know, common set of facts. You had a, a trucking company, it was a privately held company. In New Jersey, um, you know, encounters significant financial trouble, I think, in the financial crisis. It had been acquired in a leveraged buyout prior to the financial crisis. Um, and there was a you know significant question as to whether that leveraged buyout, you know, either created or enhanced the distress that the company experienced. But in any case, they went into bankruptcy and it was immediately clear that the company was not going to be able to reorganize um, for a variety of reasons. And so although the company could have liquidated under Chapter 7 what the secured creditors um, who were 
its CIT, its 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 principal asset-based lender, and one of the um, private equity funds that had acquired the company in the leveraged buyout, but then also acquired secured debt, um, wanted to do was to you know get the benefit of a structured dismissal. The wrinkle in the case, the trouble in the case, I think really wasn't the fact that they wanted a structured dismissal, which, you know, the Supreme Court has said, like, you can still do those. Um, the wrinkle in the case was that the, the Unsecured Creditors Committee was very concerned that the leveraged buyout had constituted a fraudulent conveyance. And, you know, I, for folks who are not, you know, intimately familiar with the workings of, of, of bankruptcy, Leveraged buyouts for many years have been um, at risk of being challenged as fraudulent conveyances because in the you know typical pattern, including this one, the purchaser of the company here, the, the private equity folks, don't actually pay for the company with their own money. Um, instead, what they do is they borrow a significant portion of the purchase price. And uh, the deal is that the assets of the company are collateral for that loan. So the shareholders of the company before the LBO, they get paid out. The company ends up getting saddled with the debt. And their reasonable lines can differ as to whether or under what conditions those sorts of transactions are appropriate. But many companies have ended up in bankruptcy following leveraged buyouts. And I think there's a reasonable concern that some leveraged buyouts are too leveraged. And so the law of fraudulent transfer says, well, if the debtor has conveyed an interest in property or given something, here, it encumbers its assets and hasn't received anything in exchange while in financial distress, that's a fraudulent transfer. So here, right, the creditors committee said, look, looks like, you know, there was leverage buyout. It looks like that might have been the cause of or contributed to company's downfall. So we want to, you know, pursue a, a fraudulent transfer investigation. And they did. And obviously, because CIT had been involved in the financing and the, and the, um, you know, private equity folks had been involved in the same thing. Like they were not happy about this, um, but they ended up having to sort of allow it to go forward. And ultimately, you know, the creditors committee did file a complaint seeking to avoid the the leverage buyout transactions and payments that were made in connection with it. Um, which you know, if the court had gotten that far, if the case had gotten that far, could have resulted in about a hundred million dollars. Uh, coming into the estate for distribution to general unsecured creditors. And, and who were the unsecured creditors? There were a bunch of employees who were not paid. There were creditors, I think, leasing companies, maybe the trucking companies, I think they leased some of the trucks. And, and the ones who were most motivated, I think, here um, to do anything about any of this were the, the, the workers who had all, most of whom had been laid off shortly after the company went into bankruptcy. And they end up being important because they were entitled to a statutory priority for unpaid wages. And the sort of simple version of the structured dismissal is the creditors committee and the defendants in the fraudulent transfer litigation agreed that they could split the assets of the debtor um, and give, um, you know, the secure creditors mostly got paid off. Um, the unsecured, the unsecured creditors would get a very small payout, um, but the truck drivers would get nothing on account of their special priority wage claim. Um, so one of the things that we didn't talk about earlier is that the bankruptcy code creates um, 
a set of special sort of politically motivated priorities um, for certain kinds of unsecured creditors. Um, so, for example, taxing authorities have a special priority, even though they're unsecured creditors. Um, and the same would be true for, for workers whose wages have not been paid. Um, there are caps on the amounts, but you know the basic idea is that they would be prior in right for payment to general unsecured creditors. So the you know kind of nub of the problem in, in Jevic was that the structured dismissal settled the fraudulent transfer action, brought a little bit of money into the estate, uh, or created value for the estate, but that value was not um, distributed in the order of priority contemplated by the bankruptcy code. Instead, it skipped over the truck drivers, their wage priority. Um, in order to make you know a small distribution or seek to make a small distribution to the general unsecured creditors, and so the bankruptcy court has to approve this structured dismissal for it to be effective. And and Judge Shannon, who's a wonderful judge, um, faced with a really really hard situation because you know it's not like there's a business to reorganize here, and he I think understandably worried that there might not even be enough unencumbered value to pay the fees of a trustee in chapter seven. And so this settlement that the unsecured creditors committee had proposed with the secured creditors, splitting the assets and skipping the truck drivers, looked like it was a good deal. It was the least bad deal that they were gonna be able to come up with. And so he approved it. And from my perspective, the the structure dismissal really had two problems. the first and the one that certainly got the most attention is this idea that it, it you know, defied absolute priority, skipped priority. And that's what the Supreme Court focused on, and that's what the court said you cannot do. You know, a final distribution in, in bankruptcy, regardless of the pathway out, you have to adhere to absolute priority unless you get the consent of the affected creditor. Fine. Um, the second thing, though, that the structure dismissal did was it made it impossible for the truck drivers to pursue any fraudulent transfer claims against CIT or the the, um, private equity guys outside of bankruptcy. And that to me was extraordinary um, because what it meant was that after bankruptcy, these guys, you know, who may or may not have caused the company's demise would be entirely free from scrutiny for that transaction. Mm -hmm. And so that presents a whole bunch of problems like, Okay, well, the effect of dismissal is supposed to return the debtor to the status quo pre-bankruptcy, right? It's not supposed to give folks special benefits that they could only obtain through bankruptcy, like a release or discharge. It's supposed to say, okay, you go back to the world as it was before bankruptcy. The world before bankruptcy for Jevic was a world in which ultimately the truck drivers who were grumpy about having not gotten their wages paid, you know, could have sued to avoid the LBO transactions as fraudulent transfers. They might or might not have won. We don't know enough about the underlying facts to know, but they could have had that, the, the, the right to litigate that in a state court in New Jersey. And the structured dismissal sought to take that away from them. And that to me was you know, equally problematic because I think at the end of the day, one of the few remaining serious constraints on you know, irrationally exuberant leveraged acquisitions is the threat of a fraudulent transfer you know, lawsuit in the event the company fails. So what Jevic, what the structure dismissal in Jevic really pretended was, you know, secured creditors and, you know, whoever they can kind of buddy up with can divvy up the assets however they want. 
and they can walk away from any exposure they have if they can persuade a judge that you know any other alternative looks worse. And that I think was you know that was really really to me threatening to the integrity of the system because it means that you know the system is 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 no longer serving the interests of general and secured creditors, um, you know, or, you know, the, sort of the, the larger creditor body of the debtor generally, but instead really sort of the secured creditors and the folks that they can get appointed to run the corporate debtor. To your point about sort of the valence with hedge funds and private equity and so on and so forth, I think that's a, an important point. Um, the, the, I think the two or two or three things that have, have happened in, in chapter 11 practice over the you know, past 40 some years that have really changed the total dynamic of the process, especially for larger companies. The first is, you know, that you have, you know, and, you know, I think a fairly robust market for the trading of claims. Um, that's important because although Jevic was, an exa- was not an example of it, you know, in many cases, right, the folks who end up dealing with the bankruptcy are not the original creditors, but they're folks you know, the distress investors, um, you know, Fortress or Cerberus or, you know, whatever. And, and they, you know, their, their whole reason for existing is to invest in companies that are in financial distress by buying up, you know, defaulted debt or distressed debt, and then participating actively in, in, in the bankruptcy reorganization process. Um, in any case, um, you know, private equity is, you know, I think extremely important in chapter 11 because you know private equity is important in the economy generally um even you know private equity investors who are not distressed investors you know can play a very important role in in, in bankruptcy and, and so what you saw in jevic for example is you know a private equity firm that held multiple positions against the debtor um so they had equity but then they also had a secured claim well historically right bankruptcy you know contemplated a simpler situation, right? So you'd have a secured creditor who was a bank. Well, banks could only hold secured debt, right? They didn't have, maybe they had an unsecured claim, but, you know, they didn't have um, equity and a secured claim against the corporate debtor. Um, but now, you know, you have folks like Sun was the, the, the private equity firm in, in, in Jevic. You know, they can, they can have anything, right? They can have any set of, of, of claims that they can acquire against a corporate debtor. Um, and indeed, if you go look at, I was just looking at the filings in the uh, Pacific Gas and Electric case, and you see, like, you know, there are lots of very large, you know, private equity, you know, funds that have multiple positions, all sorts of positions against the debtor, um, you know, debt, and they have, you know, options, and they have equity, and they whatever they have, and so that makes things really, really, really complicated. Um, and in particular, when you have folks who have both equity and secured debt. Right. They end up having a ton of leverage over the company, a ton of procedural power, because as a practical matter, right, they can, you know, say, well, we're just going to take the assets and go if um, we're not happy with what's, you know, with what's going on here. And so that kind of dovetails with the third thing that's going on, which is the you know, rise of secured credit, um, you know, as a, as a relative portion of a, of, a, of a company's asset profile and secured creditors you know, are, they just have much more power um, over corporate debtors today than they used to for a bunch of subsidiary reasons, um, which are beyond sort of the scope of this, but companies go into bankruptcy with lots of secure debt. Sometimes it's held by just traditional lenders like CIT, as in Jevic, sometimes it's held by private equity folks like Sun. Um, 
uh, in either case, right, what I think functionally happens is, you know, before bankruptcy, the secured creditors say to management, things don't look so good here. Mm-hmm. You should go. And management leaves, operational management leaves, and they appoint a turnaround expert, which is what happened in, you know, in, in, in Javid. And the turnaround experts, you know, there's a whole industry of, of these folks, Alvarez and Marcel, and, you know, whatever, Julian Loki. And, you know, I mean, these are, these are smart people and they know a lot about how to, you know, deal with financial distress. You know, I think one of the concerns that folks have is that their loyalties, you know, at the end of the day are going to run to the folks that they deal with most frequently. Well, the folks that they're likely to deal with most frequently will be, you know, the relatively small universe of distressed investors who are repeat players in, in, in bankruptcy. So, you know, indirectly, what you have is, is worry about a system where the secured creditors have been able to use what, you know, I think of as kind of their property priority rights to obtain procedural priority um, because as a practical matter, they, you know, can significantly influence the management of the debtor both prior to the bankruptcy process and then, you know, as we saw in Jevic, through the bankruptcy process and use that leverage um, and that procedural power to, you know, try to control um, outcomes in the case that I think were just, you know, antithetical to what Congress thought it was, it was, it was getting when it created Chapter 11. So after Jevic, uh, how do you see that changing uh, practice around corporate reorganizations or are you already seeing some changes as a result of, of this case is holding? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, I, so like I, you know, companies are not engaging in structured dismissals that make priority skipping distributions at the end of the case, right? You know, Justice Breyer says you cannot do that. Folks can read, they read that, they say, okay, we're not going to do that. But, you know, he said nothing about, they said nothing about structured dismissals generally, nor did they forbid um, what might be viewed as priority skipping distributions prior to the end of the case. And, you know, those two things are sort of important. So structured dismissals, I think, are still happening. And I don't know that there's, I mean, there's sort of, you know, I think some concern about abuses of them, but I don't think that is going to go away. Um, and I think there's probably greater pressure for corporate debtors to make larger distributions prior to the end of a case, even though that may be in effect out of the order of absolute priority. And so like the classic examples of those, you know, priority skipping early distributions will be, you know, first day payments to trade creditors, first day payments to employees, right? Um, First day being like the first day of, of bankruptcy. And when you had companies trying to reorganize, truly reorganized in chapter 11, um, these first day payments became, you know, important because the trade creditors said, well, we're not going to supply trade credit to the debtor during the case if you don't kind of make us whole for the pre-bankruptcy stuff you owe us, you know, at least a little bit, some of it, all of it. Um, and the workers said the same thing. And, you know, courts sort of held their nose and, and approved those sorts of things, even though the bankruptcy code really, you know, forbids it. It's not, it's not appropriate. Um, and so that has sort of expanded over time to all sorts of payments. So, you know, now like CIT in Javik went into bankruptcy and like the second thing that happened in the case was they used the debtor in possession loan, super priority loan that, um, that they made to the corporate debtor to pay off themselves, right? Their pre-bankruptcy secured debt. You saw something similar happen in GM, apparently with, I think it was, I think it was JP Morgan Chase. You see folks, you know, making earlier distributions 
that shouldn't be made, you know, arguably um, until the end of the case. Um, but they do so because, you know, courts believe that they, they have to for any number of reasons. In Jevic, I mean, one of the many problems with the case was it was hard to understand why there was a debtor in possession loan during the case at all if the company was liquidating from the outset. Like they might have needed some cash to kind of deal with the wind down costs, but they didn't need a $55 million debtor in possession loan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but of course, CIT wanted to use the proceeds of that to pay themselves off, which is rational. And, and you know, so that's what, that's what ended up getting, getting approved. Um, so I think there's greater pressure to pay more earlier in, in cases. I think the other thing that you are likely to see more of is just gamesmanship around um, kind of who is actually making what sort of payment. Um, one of the interesting things about Jevic is that the same day that the Third Circuit Court of Appeals decided the Jevic case, you know, which was then ultimately overruled by the Supreme Court, um, a different panel of the, street, of the Third Circuit decided a case known as life care. And life care was very similar in many ways to Jevic. It was essentially a kind of controlled foreclosure in bankruptcy. You know, the debtor had gone in with you know, its assets fully encumbered. Um, it was clear that, you know, a plan of reorganization was not going to be viable. Um, and they, you know, tried to get out by using a priority skipping structure dismissal. Um, in life care, the folks that were skipped were um, the taxing authorities, not uh, workers. Um, but, you know, they objected. The, the, the IRS objected in, in life care and said, wait a minute, you can't do this. We're entitled to, you know, tax, you know, special priority under the bench code. And you've, you know, divvied up the assets between the secured creditors and, and the general unsecured creditors. And they're skipping over us and that's not okay. And the outcome there was very different from JAVIC, um, you know, in part because uh, life care was not, you know, appealed to the Supreme Court. They didn't seek cert on that. And in part because the way the structured dismissal in life care was crafted, the secured creditors, in effect, according to Judge Amber, used their own money to pay off the junior folk. Um, and so made what we think of as a gift to junior folks. And, and the idea of gifting in bankruptcy is not new. But it's it's important because it's it's a way that you could skip priority and not necessarily run afoul of the absolute priority rule, because of course the absolute priority rule only applies to property of the debtor. It does not apply to property of other people. And so, at least in theory, if some you know, third party wants to make a gift to a you know a junior claimant, like a general unsecured creditor, in order to obtain their consent to do something you know, vote for a plan or, you know, support a structured dismissal, you know, the, the estate in theory doesn't have anything to say about it because it's not the estate's property. This was a live issue in, in, in life care because, you know, you had secured creditors who were, you know, like CIT undersecured. They had tried to sell the debtors. There, the debtors were a series of, um, I think, nursing homes um, and, and healthcare facilities. And they were scattered around the nation or at least in the South. Um, and, I think in in fairness to, to them, they were doing everything they could to keep the, the, the debtors going because they didn't want to put the patients and the workers out on the street. And they marketed the debtors and nobody wanted to buy the debtors. And and so they said, well, we'll take the debtors and, you know, then we'll figure out what to do later. Um, so it was a different dynamic than Javik, where you just had a company that was going out of business. Um, and, you know, 
you know, got a, a more recent paper talking, you know, in greater detail about life care, where I say, you know, life care might really have been justified by the special exigencies of the case. You know, we don't want to put lots of, you know, sick and elderly folks out on the street, which is what would have happened if you just liquidated the case. But it's a it's a tough case because really, if you look at what was going on there, it wasn't clear that secured creditors were using their own money, except in the most formalistic sense, pay off these junior unsecured creditors. Right, they were just using you know, the value of the estate that they said was sort of in in their own escrow or something like that. And so that's sort of another way that I think you'll see um, folks try to get around Jevic is through this idea of of gifting of 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 using other people's money, you know, sort of ostensibly other people's money to buy peace in these cases. Um, and for many folks, that's not necessarily a problem. The only question is like, what's the right price, and how do we figure out kind of a process? That everybody's you know okay with to get to that price, but you know those are I think the sorts of things that we're seeing you know in the wake of of, of, of Jevic, you know more um, earlier priority skipping distribution gifting, but you know the continued use of structured dismissals in you know perhaps more slightly more modest ways. Jonathan, the court in Jevic held that consent is really key uh, to overcoming uh, the statutory priority rules. Could you discuss what that means, uh, th- this concept of consent in, in this context, and maybe what, what some of the process values that come into play uh, when we're talking about consent? Sure. So, right, as we said, you know, what Justice Breyer tells us in Javik is, you know, structured dismissal, final distributions in cases have to follow absolute priority absent the consent of an affected creditor. Which, you know, naturally leads to the question, well, what constitutes consent? And, you know, as I say in the Secret Life of Priority paper, like, consent is not self-defining. And you know, the bankruptcy code doesn't tell us what it is. Um, and it, you know, it turns out to be a really tricky question in, you know, large aggregate proceedings like Chapter 11 reorganization. In the traditional Chapter 11 process, a plan of reorganization, we know exactly what consent looks like. Because in order to confirm a plan of reorganization, creditors get to vote. And if you vote for it, then you've consented to it. But if you have a structured dismissal, there is no voting. And so it's really hard to know. Like, is the absence of an objection consent? Or like, you know, how do we know? In Jevic, it was really easy, right? Because, um, you know, the, the truck drivers had objected, so they clearly did not consent. The thing that I think is important for me in Jevic, or one of the things that's important in Jevic is, Justice Breyer's analysis of, of what I think of as the process values that the court was looking to when it, when it was trying to figure out what consent means. So the court's concerned about participation in the reorganization process. You know, if you don't have a plan where you can participate through voting, um, you know, how much did you know, unsecured creditors have a chance to participate in the structuring of the um, structured dismissal? Um, number two, predictability, right? You know, we want to be able to sort of predict outcomes in bankruptcy and absolute priority is super predictable, right? You know, A is in B is in C. Um, and, you know, finally, this idea of, of integrity. We don't want folks, you know, colluding, you know, the juniors and the seniors squeezing out the folks in the middle um, because that's, for a variety of reasons, something that corrodes people's confidence in the process. Our guest today has been Jonathan Lipson. 
Harold E. Cohn Professor of Law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law. We discussed his article, The Secret Life of Priority, Corporate Reorganization After Jevic, uh, which was recently released in the Washington Law Review, and I'll include a link to that in the liner notes of today's episode. Jonathan, thank you for joining us on the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew.